1: Christine is a estate planning professional who helps people organize their estate lives in multiple facets. And I brought her on the show to talk about specifically, obviously estate planning, but more so not about the technicals of the wills, but everything else that goes into it. And with that, here's my interview with Christine. Christine, thanks for taking the time today.
2: Thank you for having me, Jason.
1: My pleasure. So Christine Brezen of Trust the Legacy, tell us about what it is you do.
2: Sure. So, you know, when I left the banking world and went out on my own, and incorporated Trusted Legacy. My goal was to help people in planning, but in planning in a different way. So I always felt like there was something missing when I was in the banking world and I wanted to go deeper with people. But because I was so busy and and obviously doing planning with so many, I didn't really have the ability to go that Deeper, an extra mile with them. But there's always something yearning inside of me that said, you know what? There's something more I can do. They give me so much information. We have so many great talks. And how do I actually help them get a better plan instead of just doing the traditional will and estate plan, send them off to the lawyer, get the documents, put the documents away, and we're done? And so when I developed my own business, I really kind of delved into what did I want the process to look like? And the process was really around uncovering what their legacy mission statement is. Because I think if you can actually articulate what your legacy mission statement is, you probably show up every day and live it more intentionally than if you can't put any kind of framework or conversation around it. So really understanding what drives you from a legacy standpoint and what your strategy is. It's like if I, if I said to you, help in a boat right now, Jason, and I want you to set a course for somewhere. And you'll say to me what?
1: Actually, the first thing that came to mind was the old Yogi Berra saying, if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up somewhere else. But yes, my response will be, where am I going and why?
2: (laughs) Right. So, I mean, the same thing is with your legacy plan, right? If you know what you want to achieve at the end, you can shift around, you know, when the weather gets stormy, you're going to shift and kind of go around things and and you're going to have always things that come up. But if at least you have an idea of what it is you want to have happen at the end of the day and what you want to achieve, you're probably going to get there in a much more efficient way than just setting out and, and saying, okay, well, I'm just going to sail until I figure it out. But again, I think you know, legacy planning is one of those things that a lot of people will intentionally put off, not want to talk about. And I think the reason for that is because of education. Again, we, we know that financial literacy just came into the school network not that long ago but there is no legacy literacy in school. There's no estate literacy in school. And so people just don't know what they don't know. And, and again, I bring it back to you. You are sitting there in front of your, at your desk and you've got piles of work in front of you. Are you going to gravitate to the pile that you know how to do and you know how to do quite well, and you can probably efficiently get through it? Are you going to gravitate to that pile that you really know that there's stuff in that pile that you have no idea how to do, and it's going to take some research and a little more work. You probably procrastinate on that pile then and move to the ones that you know how to do. And the same thing happens with legacy planning. And there's not that many people out there that will sit down with you to really uncover and to help you understand and and learn the mechanics behind things to give you a comfort zone to know that the decision you're making is the right decision. Because for me, I look at it that way all the time. If I'm going to make a decision to do something, I need to understand the underpinning. I need to know the why am I making that decision.
1: So we were talking before this started, and we am going to come back to the legacy mission statement and everything in a second. But when we were talking, I said, the, uh, the thing about estate planning is it suffers from the same problem as every other you know, segment of the financial planning process, right? People confuse the product that comes as an end result from the process with the actual with planning itself. Financial plans are basically a stack of paper, but really the financial planning process is, is the art of figuring all this stuff out and going through that's necessary to get to the end, end result. If you just want to buy a cheap financial plan, there is, you just, just Google financial planning user software, you can probably find something that does a five minute plan and calls it a plan, which is criminal. You have the same problem, you know, and people get involved in investing, but they have no plan for that. They they have no strategy about how that fits in the rest of their lives. Same thing with insurance and tax planning. Like these things all get siloed, just like estate planning does. And we confuse the fact that we come out of it with the financial plan, investment accounts, insurance policies, taxes filed, and a will and power attorney with the planning process. And that is not the same thing. It's the old you will sing about the, the journey is more important than the destination, right? And if we don't go through that journey properly, it's the old, I'll go back to Yogi Berra, you'll end up somewhere else that you didn't plan on. So what you're saying you're doing there is essentially you're setting the course of destination before you even start. Most people start like, okay, so let's start with your will. Okay, so what do you own? What do you owe? Blah, blah, blah. Here you are going like, wait a sec, what are we trying to accomplish here in your life, right?
2: That's absolutely what it comes down to is you have to know, you have to understand what you're planning for in order to make sure that the plan makes sense. You can always adjust it as time goes on. I mean, the classic example is you get out of school and you probably don't actually do your first will until you've maybe got a a decent full-time job and maybe you get married and you start thinking about all your mortality. Like if something happens, you better make sure that you leave everything to your wife or, Mm
0: -hmm. you know, then
2: kids come into the mix. But I think people are sometimes afraid of going to get standard basic information because they're unwilling to pay the fee to a lawyer to get that information and sometimes the lawyers don't necessarily always want to sit down and educate you because they know that you're never going to want to pay a bill for mm-hmm. education
1: i mean it's it's funny it's the old uh <laughs> yeah again people go looking for the pro for the for the for the product not the process if we have to make them pay for the other one it would be it would be more visible as to what our value really is the okay so that's the general challenge. You get them to frame the the, the, the problem the problem they're facing in the right terms, which is this is not about getting you a document. This is about getting you a plan that's going to basically help you fulfill what it, your legacy is going to be. So talk to me about how you start that conversation. Like, What are the questions you ask them? How do you get them to, to go from saying, I need a will to, oh, this is how I want to live the rest of my life and my legacy to be after I'm gone. Right.
2: So it's a lot of self-reflection. About what are the things in your life that you really enjoy? What are the things that this is the, always the one that tends to drive the conversation. it's around the fears, right? What are the things that keep you up at night? What are the things you're most fearful of? What happens if if you can't make decisions anymore? What happens if you have a disabled child? The fear, the pain points are always the ones that tend to drive a plan. Not necessarily the pleasure points, but that's usually the fear points. And that's where it starts. But it can quickly morph in to the pleasure points. So there's information out there through the Canadian Association of Gift Planners and some Ipsos read studies and everything else. And I think you have discussed this in the past as well, that says that if I were to go full, hundred clients and ask them if their advisor and I exclude you here because I know that this is something that you do address.
1: <laughs> I but there's a lot
2: that don't. And I was asked these hundred clients, have you sat down and had a philanthropic conversation with your advisor? About 15% yeah. of them are going to say they've had that conversation. But if I went to advisors and I pulled hundred advisors and asked them how many were having philanthropic conversations with their client, about 90% of them say, oh yeah, of course I do that.
1: Yeah. You know what? Here's the thing. I've never met a survey I didn't hate. And I have to think that if you ask an advisor, did you do this thing you're supposed to be doing? They're going to say yes. So yeah. I think that, you know, there is some there is some stacking of that. Like, did you put in place, did you do proper risk tolerance assessment and put in place an investment policy? System? Oh, totally. I did that. Totally. I did that. I'm sure you did. Can you show me where you've documented those conversations? And the answer is no. Right. So I'm more prone to believe that the number is somewhere in the middle. I, I'm sure the clients are forgetting.
2: I would say it's not that at all. I would say it's it's simply there's a gap in what the advisor thinks is a philanthropic conversation and what the client is thinking is a philanthropic conversation. Because the advisor probably thinks, and I'll tell you, I, I, was, I did this before, like when I was very new in estate planning, I set out that way too, asking clients, do you give to charity every year? Oh, yeah. So what's your giving strategy? How much do you give? Who do you give to? Are you looking at leaving gifts in your will? to any particular charities, you know, yep. and that I felt at the time that that was a proper philanthropic conversation, but in today's age, clients aren't thinking that's a philanthropic conversation. So I turn that on its head now, and I don't even start at that point anymore. I go directly to the financial plan that the advisor has pulled together for them. And we go to the very back of the plan where it says estate planning. And I look down the bottom of the page and I, I pull out the tax number. And to drive the conversation, I always started this way. Imagine that at the end of your life, this amount now signifies the bag of money that your executor is going to pick up and drop off on the doorstep of the government upon your passing. <laughs> Are you okay with that? Or would you rather pull some or all of that back and deploy it to something that might be nearer and dearer to your heart than CRA?
1: So we covered this previously with, uh, with Mark Halpern, where he said, you know, you only got only, only three people are going to get your money, your beneficiaries, CRA or charity. And you won't. and you've only got a choice about two of those. So but one comes at the expense of CRA.
2: Right. And so usually when they you know, when they get over the shock of that number and and then they can start to have a conversation, you pull down some walls and it's you know, then you have to have the heart to heart conversations about. I think it, it delves into your real, your psyche, it's a self-reflection thing, asking questions like, what is the thing you had when you were growing up that really propelled you and, and gave you that ability to achieve success in your life? Or if there was one thing that you could have had growing up that you didn't, that you think, man, if I had that, I probably could have done so much better. Maybe it's something around that, or maybe it's something from within your family, you know? family circumstances, you had a family member who was disabled, or you had a mother or father who went through a particular life circumstance or an illness or whatever. People get driven by different things. Some people are driven by animals. I can see you got your dog there. So for some people, it's all about, it's about how they feel about their pet. But it's, if you're not going to ask those questions, you're not going to uncover whether or not somebody has the propensity to want to give to something else that might be meaningful to them. So I always bring it up that way and then work it backwards. It's the whole thing. I think it's, if we had to come up with an equation, it's legacy equals, and then we go through all the rest of the things.
1: I agree. It's interesting too. I'll add one other dimension. Now, I haven't, um, we haven't fully started doing this yet, but there's a bunch of data aggregation plays we're looking to do. And what I actually want to start looking at is, Where are they? You know, they're going to give me their their information as to, you know, where they're spending money. I'd like to know what charities they're actually giving to. I mean, sometimes we ask this, but I mean, if there's a, if there's a serialized giving to a charity of purpose, there's got to be a reason for that other than, and maybe the reason is something as simple as, you know, my kid basically does a ride to conquer cancer every year, right? Maybe that's, maybe there's no connection, but more often than not, I'd say that, you know, there's probably some form of connection. I mean, we all go through life with some sort of, Hardship, some sort of negative event, some sort of thing that we could have, again, like you pointed out, the contrast of what if you had had this versus what if you had hadn't. I think that was, those are hugely, hugely impactful commentaries as to informing your decision. So someone comes to a conclusion they don't want Sierra get in their chair, they want it to go somewhere else. What is the next step in that process?
2: The next step in the process is really figuring out, like, what are the other responsibilities? So you now know that you have some charitable intention. What are your other responsibilities with your estate? Do you have children that you need to provide for? Do you have a spouse you need to provide for? How does that all play out together? And how do you pull it all apart and figure out what portions go where, right? And again, it speaks to that whole, that whole conversation about what's going on. You know, are your, are your kids all set in life? They've all fully launched. Or do you have one that hasn't launched and maybe never will launch? Are you, you're both, you're getting older. Do you, is your spouse fully capable? Do you recognize that maybe they're going to be going through some sort of capacity event? There's so many questions to ask. It's, I think estate planning conversations is all about your client sitting down and just spilling everything. And I often get this, the comment that, oh, you know, it's it's like coming to you is like sitting down and talking to a. psychologist or a psychiatrist, because I feel like I'm opening my coffers and you're going so far into rabbit holes and I'm giving out so much information that I never thought was even relevant to my financial plan or relevant to anything, but it is all relevant because it all works its way and it all, it's all intricately woven together.
1: Everything that matters to you is relevant to a financial planning process. I mean, I always the ongoing joke is that we're all untrained, unpaid therapists. <laughs> really, the, the reality is, is that you know, especially if you have a deep relationship with a client, you are there for the good, bad, ugly, and everything in between. And oftentimes, we can be the sounding board that helps. I mean, you know, some of the most de- deeply touching moments of my career have been when people were suffering from things like depression saying that if not for my positivity at certain moments, they, you know, they, they felt like that was, those were things that helped make them make, not to change it themselves. Right. So, you know, do you I, a strategy never,
2: around that, Jason, do you actually like, do you wake up in the day and, and say, you know, I want to purposely be positive. I want to compliment people. Yeah. I want to, you know, is that something that's a purpose-driven thing for you?
1: I wouldn't say thank you for all of this and I'm being interviewed. So thank you for that. So I would say that it doesn't come from that i'm not like I, I understand the fields of positive psychology and everything else i mean i think i'm motivated in two ways by two separate things one i just i believe that the future is always optimistic and there's always infinite possibility in the future right i think that speaks to a lot of the stuff i do in terms of like the technology side of of, of the industry but i also say and, and that this and that all it takes is and a change is possible and i've gone through some deep dark times in my own life where you know you just suck it up move forward push forward, eventually the bright days get brighter, right? So I, having lived that, I understand that it's, unfortunately, grit will get you through it. It sucks, but it will get you through it. And then the last part is, I think, quite frankly, I just define my my career as about helping people live the fullest version of their lives. Like that is, to me, the purest version of financial planning is forget, then the, everything else is a mechanism, right? At the end of the day, people are coming to us because I need help, right? They may be saying, I need someone to run my RSP. But what they're really saying is I have retirement savings. I clearly intend to retire. I need help. And we get way too caught up in this, in, in the in the stuff, in the products and everything else. And the fullest version and the most absolute purest version of what it is we do, if we do the best version of ourselves, is to help enable the best version of that person's life. And if someone comes to me in a bad position or something going on in their lives or some sort of family conflict or whatever it is, if my by defi- defining my role as that my role is as a change agent. It's to help them get from there to the best version of their lives. So I'm an inherent fixer. People can't come to me with problems. My wife complains about this all the time. She just wants to vent about problems in her life and not have me offer solutions because I'm not listening. It's like, but that, this is what I do. I am, I'm a, I'm a born fixer, right? And so that's that's the rant. So thank you for that interesting side note. I'm sure many people will get a kick out of that.
2: I think that you and I, and maybe there's maybe there's some sort of common element there for a lot of us who are in this industry, but I think a lot of us have that same sort of mindset that we are fixers, that we are kind of that counselor, and that that's what drives us to be in the industry we're in. I mean, honestly, me,
1: if, I was, if, if my my job was defined as I'm here to sell a mutual fund, I would have been out of it a long time ago, because frankly, that's just not, that's a limited value in my mind. And never never confuse the tools you're using with the end purpose of what you're building.
2: Absolutely. And I mean, for me, you know, when people ask me to describe what it is that I do, I always say it's, it's about helping you uncover and articulate that legacy mission statement, but also planning more efficiently, organizing things, recording things, communicating better so that your legacy can be administered to provide proper peace of mind in your lifetime, but also more favorable outcomes on your death and beyond. And that's yeah. the way that I like to position it with people because time and time again, I, what drives me in my role is the fact that I can have somebody come to me and they probably haven't really thought a whole lot about estate planning. Mm-hmm. And they may not have even uncovered what was keeping them up at night. And when I ask them, they can't articulate it either. We mm-hmm. go through the planning process. And at the end of the day, when everything is complete, they look at me and they they breathe this sigh of relief and they go, holy cow, Like what peace of mind is that? Because now I know that it doesn't matter if I lay my head on the pillow tonight or a week from now or a month from now or years from now. The fact that I've gone through this process, I know that the people that I'm leaving behind or the cherries I'm leaving behind that I want to provide for and protect, they're all taken care of and I don't need to worry anymore. And it was huge peace of mind. And it's, it's that burden being left off your shoulders. They all say that. You know, I feel like a weight has been lifted off of me that I didn't even know I was carrying.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because we have similar experiences, but different in that I might not get to that on the first pass of the estate plan, but because I think a lot of the learning that comes from my, from my experience with clients is because the relationships tend to go so long, right? So I may not, they may not articulate it, but over time they may learn to, or over time I may come to discover it, in which case we modify. Whereas you're having a much more focused, concentrated, like episodic. Like this is the, the period where we're dealing with this and we're going to dig to the bottom of it. Right. So um, I, I probably should do listen to you. I should probably do a little bit more hard digging, uh, but we both get there in the end. <laughs> so.
2: Well, and I think sometimes your client might go, well, Jason, you know, I've been coming to you for to 10 years now and you've never asked me this question before. What's prompted you to ask me it? Yes. And, you know, it's
1: okay. So I'm glad you said so that, you know, that, that resonates with something so important. So one of the things that, uh, you know, the, the, the God of financial planning in the U.S., Michael Kitsis, and I get to call him that because I because honestly, no one else comes close. He talks about is one of the struggles in this industry in, in something that's becoming hyper commoditized and automated by things like robo advisors is the ongoing pursuit of value, of value add. Like, where is it that we justify? Where is it that advisors who once justified their, their fees for just access to investments basically justify their fees for something else like how do they how do they do that because if not they're going to get their margins crushed they're going to be out of the business and it's funny because conversations like this and and suddenly asking those new questions and expanding the the scope of what you're doing for people that do actually lead that lead to that expansion of value and even in in periods of time where we took over practices in the past where we didn't get into the weeds like this where they be you know the clients would go through this and be like wow we you know we We've been a client of this firm for for 20 years, and we've never gone through this. And we're just so glad that you're expanding the offering. Like, you know, sometimes people are like, will be like, worried that the client will turn around and say, "Why didn't you do this before? Like, why wasn't it done?" As opposed to just being grateful that you, they came to you for an expectation, you met it. You can now exceed it, and you can exceed it in a meaningful, deep way. Yep.
2: Yeah. And there's a yeah. few things when it comes to you know legacy planning that I. I have probably that are nearer and dearer to my heart than some of the other people out there that are in the role. But, you know, I do believe that in Ontario, which is where I'm practicing currently, that we do not utilize Alter Ego and Joint Partner Trust nearly enough. They protect people far better in some circumstances. They're great tools. They, you know, your process of minimizing probate, um, acting as a power of attorney substitute, but protecting, there could be protector trustees brought in okay. to oversee things, to make sure the person is being looked after. There's a lot of folks out there too, who they're in a relationship and they know that their spouse is maybe going to struggle if something happens to them first. And and having these things set up so that, you know, we don't have to have to go through a full-on estate administration at the end of the day. Like I would say probably the people I'm doing this planning with more are the people that are 80 plus. And they know they're headed towards some sort of capacity event, because let's face it, you know, dementia and capacity is not one of those things. Usually you turn the light off one day and it's gone. Usually a right. never switch there. And people do recognize that they're starting to head down a path. Um, they're fearful, but it's it's something that they do recognize a little bit. And then you just have to get them to open up a little bit about it. Um, but there are ways of planning around these things. I would say, you know, I, I tend to run and I've a probably minority on this, but I tend to run what's called a cost-benefit analysis for people. So give me what your state plan is today. Well, let me run all the associated costs involved with that plan and what it's doing for you. Then let me see if we can actually turn it around a little bit, make it more efficient. And then let me run the cost-benefit analysis at that stage to see if maybe an ulterior trust or a, a joint partner trust is right for you. And I'm always astounded when I... But the information in front of the client, and I'm saving them fifty, a dollars I did this for a gentleman recently who was eighty-four, and we saved three hundred sixteen thousand by utilizing a
1: trust. Just in, is that in, just, in pro, just in probate?
2: It was probate and executor fees because he knew yeah, the it, he knew the um, the son was going to engage a, an executor. Plus, we've got all the delays. It's not just it's not just the monetary piece of this. If you look at how long probate takes these days, that's a that's a big conundrum itself. Plus, going through the yeah. state administration process is not comfortable. It's not our first nature for a lot of people.
1: Well, not only that, it's complex and convoluted, and there's a lot of work to be done. And I mean, a simple example is there's there's software platforms that are launching in this country that I'll be interviewing on my other podcast that basically are there just to help get you through this the first time. I mean, that's how unfortunately this happens all the time too, is that someone will pass away. We'll say, listen, we can, you know, we don't administer estates, but here we can refer you to companies that do. We can also provide you with like some of the companies that are really great at like just even completing the basic forms and whatnot. And, 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 you know, for everything from the most simple administration to the most complex. And more often than not, people just like, no, no, I'm just going to do it myself. It's like, you have no idea what you're in for the pedantic nature of this task and the, and the fruitless one. I mean, the first off, I will say this much: like, unfortunately, the banks do charge a fortune for this. I've never used a bank for anything. This is my general opinion, <laughs> but I'll go from there. But there are other <laughs> trust companies that are more affordable and higher service. That are definitely that can hire. They can handle complexity of their cases. But the reality is, is that the average person doing something like this, even for a simple one, like we're talking years. Like we're talking, like the clearance certificates now. Like, and the lie, and Not only that, you're liable as the executor, right? For Period of time, so like a lot of guidance is like don't finish paying out the estate for three years. It's like who wants to live through that, right? And if we can avoid all that, you know, I mean, of course, of course, the deceased have to be over sixty five, but of course that's going to be the majority of deceased. If we can avoid all that through the use of these trusts, which I agree, they are underutilized, absolutely underutilized, because people come to you for estate plan, the first thing they associate is wills and powers of attorney. I will say that they're Not a first little. Nature. Exactly. And I, I will say they're a little bit underutilized in my practice as well. And largely it's because of, I, always, I won't blame the clients on this, but sometimes there's a level of, like, they need to accept the fact that we're doing something else, right? Because they're like, what, what do you mean I'm not going to have a will? What What do you mean I don't need a will? Right? And, and sometimes like, well, oh, so... Then i got to minister this trust and this complexity to it. It's, it's really not that much administration when you come, when it comes down to it.
2: Yeah. I mean, and you're always going to need the will and power attorney there anyway, because there's still roles that have to be fulfilled by those, by those persons. Well, depending on um, the assets, the will. But attorney, you know, absolutely- with regard to, yeah, with regard to the main uh, administration piece of it, it just makes things so much easier. I give you an example of that. We utilize a structure like this for an elderly couple where dad was not capable and mom was capable and we put the trust in place uh, the trust was in place in April, and dad passed away in July, and mom passed away in September, first weekend right. in September. And if that was a normal estate, we would have, you know, you would have sat there and you would have collected all the values for the assets and and been probably at the position where you could have actually approached a lawyer and applied for probate by maybe November would be pretty much traditional. Yeah. Well. Because this was a trust like that, and all we had to do at the end of the day when both were gone was to then figure out, well, what is our tax holdback amount? Because that's all we really need to know is we're not holding enough ta- money to pay the taxes back. And we had the majority of the money out to the beneficiaries before Joe down the street who's executoring his parents' estate would have even applied for probate. We had it all out by the beginning of November. So in two months, we had majority of the assets in the, in the hands of the beneficiary.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's a big misconception. People just don't, especially the beneficiaries, they really just don't understand how long this is going to take. They're like, okay, mom and dad are passed away now, and okay, this has to get settled. And okay, so when does this get taken care of? And you tell them that, well, I don't know. And this is going to be a long time. It's like, and then they wonder what the holdup is. Well, and I get
2: I mean, that, I get that too. I get the, the knock on the door, usually somebody's been referred and they, they basically bring mom or dad's life over in a huge oversize, oversized rubber made bin and drop it off and say here I don't know how to do any of it can you do it for me so I will do that I will I will help people and I'll be agent and, and walk them through the process but I I try to educate along the way as well so that I actually teach them the reasoning behind things so that you know they feel comfort and I do it in the in their comfort of their own home as well which is oftentimes something that they they really want to do. So I had another client come to me today on that because you know she's doing this for her aunt. It's not something she's really comfortable with, and trying to gather up all your stuff and take it into the lawyer's office was just not something that she really wanted to do. I think the other yeah. thing with estate planning too. So there's there's that. There's people not thinking about the other alternatives because. It's just not talked about. And it's not really first nature for a lot of us. But I think the other part is that the recording and communication around your plan, I've developed like a hundred page organizer, not to say that all mm-hmm. hundred pages are applicable to everybody, but I have literally designed it to be anything and everything in there. And one of the things that I tend to talk a lot about with people is if they're leaving behind trusts, particularly trusts for children, how do you give the person who's going to be managing that trust a little more flavor, a little more uh, meat, Towards their decision making. And so I'm a huge proponent of letters of wishes. I think they're not, yeah. they're not used nearly enough. And people always say, Well, what is a letter of wishes? And I always say to them, Listen, I the way I think about the letter of wishes is this it's gonna be your red light, blue light, green light letter. So what are all the things that you absolutely do not want to see your money being spent for with your kids? And it would just turn you over in your grave. And then what are the things you want to exercise, you know, a little more caution around, and especially knowing that child, you could make that letter very specific to each of your children because you might have children that could sell ice to Eskimos and you have other ones that you know are very responsible, right? And then what are the green light items? What are those things where hands down, no matter what, I mean if it's a disability or whatever, anything that that is like really problem education for some people. So if those things come up, you say, you know, hands down, like just go ahead, I want you to pay that item. But giving that, giving that flavor, putting that into a letter and changing it over time. I mean, as kids get older, they do maybe become more responsibility and they have more responsibility and they, they take you know their decision-making a little a little more to heart and, and whatnot. Or maybe they're never going to get there. I mean, people ask me the question all the time, you know, when you, when you have a gift over clause in a will that says, hey, listen, if there's a trust in place and it's going to be given over to somebody on that person's death. And it's going to my, say, my grandchildren. So what age is the right age? And I say, well, you tell me what the age is. I can't <laughs> yeah. tell you what the age is. You have to tell me. They said, well, how do I even think about that? So I always say, I have all these little things that I, I picked up over time that I try to use and, and bring in the conversations just to try and frame it better. One of the things I always say to people is, answer this question for me. If I haven't got good money management skills by X age.
1: am yeah, i ever going to have them.
2: I'm never going to get there. Yeah. And whatever the, whatever you filled that blank in, whatever that number was, that's the number you should use.
1: Great. So before we wrap up any last words of wisdom and uh, before we move on,
2: I think just, you know, be intentional about your planning. Don't just think about it as, you know, like we said, don't don't think about it as going and getting a will and a power of attorney, be really intentional about it and make sure that it does fit your situation and that it is going to, Protect you and and those that you care about, and and fulfill all of the goals that you have for yourself as time goes on. Really be intentional, but I think I think there's you're getting a lot more out of the process if you actually do a lot of that self reflection and and goal setting for yourself.
1: Yep, and I will repeat again: do not confuse the process with the result. The result is the documents; the process is what gets you there to the meaningful version. Christine, I thank you for this. Thank you for taking the time.
2: Been my pleasure.
1: So that was this week's episode of Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. And the final episode in it was a four-part series on legacy planning. So I hope you enjoyed that. And as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please review on iTunes, Stitcher, or get your Podcast. Until next time, take care.
0: This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.